Wow. Look at y'all. Um, I feel like this is like, uh, you know, like a, a, a Christmas party where all the family comes together and you're like, I don't really know you. You're like a cousin or something, right? Like, but uh, uh, as, uh, as Jack said earlier, we are one family coming together. I know this is a special day uh, for many of you, for us as a church, a local church as well. Um, for those of you who are coming uh, from the shelter, uh, we are so glad that you're here this morning and have chosen to spend a Sunday morning with us. Um, you know, we, we as a, a local church have been preparing for your arrival and um, have been praying for this moment. And so any way that we can help you, um, just get more accustomed to who we are. And if this is a place you want to land, we're here for you. And uh, so please reach out to us, contact us, let us know how we can best do that. Well, as, as uh, DJ mentioned, we've been in a series in the book of Acts since last January, and uh, we're in chapter 12 today, so um, I might be dead by the time we finish this series, <laughs> but we're going to make our way through it, and so uh, today I'm excited to get back into it. I recently went to the eye doctor um, after, at the end of the year last year, I was reading my Bible in the morning, and I was like, there's this weird phenomenon happening where all of a sudden I can't see the words as well as I used to. And my wife, yeah, I heard a couple groans. I, my wife has worn glasses most of her life, and she's like, I think you need to go to the eye doctor. Now, I've always had very good eyesight. I haven't been to the eye doctor in probably a decade, to be honest with you. And so I was like, all right. I mean, it's probably just I was tired, whatever. But it seemed to kind of happen. So I went to the doctor, and wouldn't you know it, I need glasses. And so uh, I only need them really when I'm reading. And I do look very good in them, you should know. Um, I can attest to that. Uh, but, you know, my, even though I was thinking this week, even though my eyesight is starting to worsen and starting to diminish, uh, I have decided that my hindsight is sharper than it's ever been. <laughs> you know, maybe you know what, you mean, what I mean. You've, you've heard the saying, right? Hindsight is 2020, And we can all admit to the truth of that. And I think that the older I get, the clearer my hindsight becomes. Can anybody attest to that? Yeah. It's so easy to look back on your life and see exactly what was happening in the moment. You didn't see it at the time, but looking back, you realize what was going on. Even if you do have to hold your phone out at arm's length, you can see what was going on in that moment. Now, growing up, I was a pretty good kid by you know, all standards of measurement that we hold today. I got good grades, I was respectful, I didn't get into much trouble, uh, I went to church, I went to youth group and all the rest, uh, but beneath all of it was this sneaking desire to be admired. I wanted people to notice me. Like, I wanted the accolades that garnered the attention of the masses. I can distinctly remember occasionally looking in the mirror in my bathroom and rehearsing what I would say on The Tonight Show. Has anybody done that before? Am I the only one? Like, I was on the David Letterman show, and I was like, yeah, David, this is what I did, right? Uh, it was like this sneaking desire for people to really notice what I had accomplished, who I was, how amazing I was. Now, as I grew older, this problem only seemed to intensify. It didn't seem to get better. When I went to college, everything I seemed to do, again, in hindsight, was at the mercy of people's admiration. I was a theater major in college, 
And uh, I loved that moment when we walked out on stage and people rose to their feet in applause and we bowed down. I, I loved when I would play music and, and people would listen and they would compliment me on my singing ability or my quality guitar playing. I, I would chase after girls in hopes that they would be infatuated with me. And in just about every situation, I became what the people around me wanted me to be in order to fit in and win their approval. Now, in later life, this problem went from bad to worse. And I took my place in full-time ministry and became consumed with the thought of how people viewed me. I started out as a worship pastor, and I wanted nothing more than people to flock to the church so they could meet Jesus and be enamored with me. Right? That's what I wanted deep down. Some of you are judging me. Don't judge me. You do it too. Okay? Now, one might think that becoming a, a pastor would sort of cure this ailment of mine. But actually, I hate to say it, it just made it worse early on. In my early years of ministry, I was consumed with the approval and affirmation of others. And it didn't, if I did it, my wife can contest to this, I would go crazy. I would go crazy. On multiple occasions, people would voice their displeasure with me or things that I was doing, and it would paralyze me. I couldn't even go about functioning correctly. Daily tasks that I needed to do were overwhelmingly difficult. And in many cases, I would make decisions that only made the problem worse. And this desire to please people and to gain their approval is something I think that all of us in this, in this room know to some degree. I mean, it's nice to be liked. I want to be liked. I want you to like me, and I'm sure you want those around you to like you. And you know what? In and of itself, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. The problem is when that desire for a person's approval, when it becomes the most important thing in your life, which is exactly what we're going to talk about and see this morning in the passage we're going to look at. So we, do something, we use something here called version. If you know what that is, it's an app you can download that's totally free. It's a Bible app. And actually, in version, you can download and go to more and then events. We have an event running right now, so you can actually follow along in version with everything I'm going to read and cover. You can take notes in there. There's questions at the end. Great resource if you don't have it. If you are just here with your Bible, um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Now, just a little bit of context for where we've been up to this point, because many of you are jumping into this series for the first time today. So at this point in the book of Acts, the, the church is starting to get some real traction in the world. Not only have things started to grow and expand in places like Jerusalem and Judea, around the surrounding areas of Jerusalem, but because of Saul's persecution, Acts chapter 7, the church has now spread to all areas of the Roman Empire, including areas like Cyprus and Antioch, the third leading uh, largest city in the Roman Empire. And as a result, this message of Jesus is moving from just connecting with those who, whose identity is in Judaism to those who are Gentiles, who are non-Jewish believers, and it's ruffling the feathers of many of those who call themselves Jewish Christians, we looked last week about 
the idea that, that despite the differences between the people in the church at the time, Gentile believers, Roman believers, Greek believers, Jewish believers, that they're starting to find their identity as to who they are. In fact, when they're in Antioch, they first receive the name Christian. And ironically, it isn't them who come up with it. It's those looking at them who come up with it. And they realize, wait a second, I guess, I guess maybe God wants us to be united under Jesus and not these identity markers that we've held on to for so long, like Roman or Jew or Greek or male or female. Everybody in this community now, we're, we're Christians. We are Jesus followers. And so the spread of Christianity continues to move forward. But as it seems in all of the book of Acts and the New Testament, it's not always that well received. It's causing some upheaval in the communities around it, especially on a political level, which is what we're going to find out happens in Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Here's what it reads. About that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. When Herod saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, he also arrested Peter. This took place during the Passover celebration. Then he imprisoned him, placing him under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. Now, I just stop there. If I ever get arrested, I want them to be so afraid that they would put four squads of four soldiers around me. Like, Peter's like, really? Like, all right. They better think I'm some sort of crazy you know, uh, assassin or something. Anyway, Herod intended to bring Peter out for public trial after the Passover. But while Peter was in prison, the church prayed very earnestly for him. All right, so stop there. Acts chapter 12, the entire chapter is really the only place that we hear about Herod Agrippa. Now, he is the nephew of Herod Antipas and the grandson of Herod the Great, who we know from the birth story of Jesus. Both are mentioned in the New Testament, and Herod Agrippa rules in Judea from about AD 41 to AD 44. He was highly educated under Roman, uh, Roman teaching, and while he was in Roman university, if you will, he made friends with many of those who were high in the polit political realm within Rome, including Caligula and Claudius, who would eventually go on to be emperors in the actual Roman Empire. And meanwhile, while he was making this connection with all of these Roman soon-to-be emperors, he was also keeping this connection to his roots in Judaism. He was playing this political game whereby everybody would approve of who Herod Agrippa was. And by the time he began ruling over Judea in 480-41, Agrippa was shaking the hands of everyone he could find, the Romans, the Greeks, and the Jews. He was, as my wife would call him, a chameleon. He was a political chameleon. He was an expert at adapting at his surroundings, especially with the people within them. And with the Romans, when he was with them, he was pleasing the Romans. And when he was with the Greeks, he was pleasing the Greeks. And when he was with the Jews, he was pleasing the Jews. Herod Agrippa was a first century chameleon. He could adapt to any situation with the hope of everyone's approval in admiration. He did everything in his power to make sure that everyone around him approved who he was and what he was doing. Uh, a commentator on the book of Acts, R. Kent Hughes, 
He writes this. He says, Herod was preeminently a politician. When he was with the Romans, he did as the Romans did. Though he was Jewish only by race and not by conviction, when he was with the Jews, he acted like a Jew. The Mishnah records that during the annual procession bearing the first fruits to the temple, when they reached the temple mount, Agrippa, the king, would take his basket on his shoulder and enter as far as the temple court. He wanted people to know that he is their friend. He wanted their approval. He would do anything, Hughes says, to maintain his popularity with the Jewish people. Now, in the case of Acts chapter 12, these first five verses, Agrippa is doing everything in his power to continue to maintain his popularity with the Jewish people and the Romans. And so with the spread of Christianity throughout the known world, all sorts of issues are starting to arise that are threatening his political uh, prestige within Judea. And so the Jews are complaining about these new people, these new Christians that are causing all of these problems. And so with the spread of Christianity, he realizes he's got to do something to continue to maintain the masses' approval of him. And so he starts to persecute this minority group, the Christians. Agrippa chooses to side with the Jewish people under his rule, and he goes after the Christians. I just want to read those couple verses again at the end, or at the beginning. It says this in verses 1 through 3. It says, About that time, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James, John's brother, it's not Jesus' brother, killed with a sword. Now read this. When he saw... How much this pleased the Jewish people. He also arrested Peter. Man, I killed People love me. You know what? Let's get Peter too. This prisoner, let's put him in prison. Let's make this thing. Let's, let's, let's make these people shout for joy for what I am and what I'm doing. I mean, Agrippa knows the way to the admiration and popularity of the Jewish people. He knows that showing force against the Christians will not only keep peace among them, but it's also going to garner admiration in the process. Luke, who is the author of Acts, even records that after killing James, Herod sees how much it pleases the Jewish people, and he arrests Peter as well. Why does Luke decide to include that little factoid? That he saw how much it pleased the Jews. Now, I don't want to mince words here because I think what Luke is saying is that, man, Agrippa is a true blue people pleaser. He is after one thing, the admiration and approval of others. That's it. And not only will it eventually mean his own demise, but his insistence on pleasing others does irreparable harm. He's killing people now to make sure that the approval of other people stands the test of time for him. So let's talk about people-pleasing for a minute. Now, I know this only applies to a couple of you. But let's talk about it anyway. Because I want to break down what's actually happening when we, like Herod Agrippa, seek the approval and admiration of others over just about anything else. First off, I want to say this. There is nothing inherently wrong with wanting to help people experience joy and pleasure and happiness. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. I mean, at one level, we are called as followers of Jesus to do that very thing, 
to love one another as he has loved us. We're, we're asked to be peacemakers and to consider our, 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 the others and, and serve others. We are called to be all things to all people for the sake of the gospel, Paul says. There's a peace of what it means to follow Jesus that includes pleasing others. But people-pleasing can easily become less about what it means to follow Jesus and more about what it means to have others follow you. And that's where that fine line exists. Because here's the truth. You're not going to want to hear this, but I'm going to say it anyway. People-pleasing isn't about pleasing others. It's about pleasing ourselves. At the core, people-pleasing is a desire to be admired and and experience momentary comfort. When I've sought to please others in that manner, it's not because I do and want the right thing to happen. I do it because it only benefits me in the moment. I want others to take notice of me, approve of me, and like me. It's all about me. Do you really think that Herod Agrippa cares about the Jewish people in Acts chapter 12? Heck no. Do you think that his reason for killing James and imprisoning Peter is so he can see the joy on the faces of the Jews and so that his convictions can be finally seen in the light? Of course not. He doesn't care about any of that. Do you think he really cares about this Christian movement and any convictions about its threat to Judaism? No. The only thing that Herod Agrippa cares about is what? Himself. That's it. The only reason Agrippa does what he does is because it makes him feel good to experience the approval of others, if only for just a moment. And for him, it does not matter what the cost is. He will kill somebody to make sure that he continues to feel and experience that comfort that he wants in his life. People-pleasing is just like this. Man, I got to thinking about this, and I was like, this is so twisted. I just want to, I just want to make that really clear. It is really, Satan is really crafty with this. Really crafty. And I can't tell you how many times I have sacrificed doing the right thing in order to gain the approval or the admiration or the, the, the likingness of another person. I'm not sure I could even count how many times I have done that. And I think in the moment, I would, I would probably tell you, well, I'm doing this for them. I want them to be happy. I want them to be pleased. But really, I was doing it for me. I don't want to be disliked. I, I, I don't want there to be discomfort. I, I don't want to deal with conflict. So I lied. I shrouded the truth. I said one thing, but I meant another, and it was all for the sake of me. It had nothing to do with the other person. It was all about me. Now, by the way, do you know what we call something when we decide to... Um, admire something and put it at a place of prominence, put it on a pedestal. Yeah, idolatry. It's worship. It's worship. We call worship. Anytime we decide to place something or someone above everything else, it's an, it becomes this idol, it becomes this God, it becomes our focus of worship in life, which means that people-pleasing is actually self-worship. 
Like when we are seeking to just make sure that the people in our life are just content and even though it's the wrong thing to do and we're just doing it because we want to be liked, we're actually worshiping ourselves. Do you see how twisted this can get? I mean, listen, a Herod Agrippa, he, there's only one person on his mind. It's not Jesus. It's not a golden calf. It's King Agrippa. That's it. He is his own idol. And the only way that he can keep peace with himself is to make sure that everybody around him is perfectly content in the way he thinks they need to be. I mean, think about it. The main goal of people-pleasing is for everyone to approve and affirm you. It's about maintaining your own comfort no matter the cost. And so you will do anything to make sure people place you on the pedestal you desire, making you the object of your own worship. Man, I tell you what, hindsight's twenty twenty, but it is brutally honest sometimes. I mean, it's really kind of ironic, this whole thing. We often see people pleasing as a servant-minded, meek, humble behavior. I just want what's best for you. I just want, I want you to be happy. I just, right, doing everything to make sure everyone is happy and everyone's at peace. But really, our main goal is just to make sure that I'm happy and that I'm at peace no matter the cost. The people we're trying to please are actually taking a back seat to our desire to gain approval. And in doing so, we actually take the posture of worshiping ourselves. It's so crazy. It's so crazy. But you know what's even worse about it? Is that those around us, they become the victims of our own people-pleasing. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I made a decision solely based on my desire to make sure that someone liked me or make sure that I got the approval of someone only to destroy the trust and confidence of another person. I'm going to say it. You please one person, you're going to tick off another. Okay? This whole people-pleasing thing, it doesn't exist. Right? So for all of Agrippa's attempt to please the Jewish people, they'll never be happy as long as the Christian movement exists. And eventually, the emperor will find out the Christian movement is not going anywhere. And if you want to please somebody, you better please them, not everybody else. It just doesn't work. Right? And there are always casualties in the process. And I'll tell you this, if you step into any position of leadership, whether it be at your workplace, maybe you're a school teacher, you're in ministry, you're leading a group, you step into any position of leadership, anytime you make a move simply based on the approval of a person or people, something will go wrong. It will. I mean, listen, this is how deeply rooted this is in me. Even as I say these words, even as I say these words, do you know what kind of a battle is happening in my own heart and mind? As a recovering people pleaser, I'll call myself. I want your approval. Like half of you in this room now, this is the first time you've ever been to Genesis. Man, I want you to walk out of here going, this is amazing. This is the best thing that's ever happened to me, right? You're not going to do that. And if you do, that's great, but I don't expect that. But that's, in, you know, like in my flesh, like that's what I want. Man, did you listen to Ryan? Man, he is right. I had, Jesus, man, I need to figure some stuff out, man. 
I need to give more money to this church. I got to figure something out. Just kidding. Just kidding. I don't want your money. I don't want your money. It's a struggle. It's a struggle for me. I mean, I, I, I want you to walk out of here hanging on to every word I say if it's, as if it's the last thing you'll ever hear. I want you to not only approve of what we do and who we are, but praise it. But I want you to know this too. The church is the perfect place for recovering people pleasers like me. It's a safe place to admit your faults and to say, Holy Spirit, heal me. Listen, I'm not telling you all of this so you can feel bad for me. I don't want your pity. I don't want your pity. I really don't. Pray for me, okay? But I, don't, I don't want that. I'm, I'm saying this because I want this to be a safe place for you whether it's this issue or any issue that you're wrestling with, that feels safe to say what's actually going on and to admit this is a weakness of mine and I want God to, to change me so that I might be able to live in step with him more closely. Now, I've learned to call my people-pleasing thoughts what they are. Over the years, I think in hindsight, looking back, I've realized, man, it's just not worth it. There's got to be a better way to do this. We're going to talk about that in a second. But if I were to let those thoughts consume me, it would easily allow me to slip into this place of self-worship, of just constantly hoping that people will approve of me, like me, that I'll feel comfortable with that. I'd become the Herod Agrippa in my own mind, making moves and decisions solely based on the approval of other people. It is an impossible task. So it makes us ask the question, like, if we're caught in that, what do we do? I don't want to be Herod. I want to be James and Peter. James and Peter aren't trying to people please anybody. They're only trying to please one person with their life, and they're losing it in the, re in the result. So I, how do I overcome this desire to people please like Herod Agrippa and allow our, myself to become the object of my own first? Well, first is this. We have to refocus our worship. Like, if we recognize there is an idol in our life like this one, we, we've got to be willing to confess it, call it what it is, and refocus our worship. If we fear the disapproval of others, it's usually because our worship is focused on the wrong person. So let's start there. If our worship is on anyone or anything other than Jesus, we will wrestle with the junk like people pleasing. Second, there is a better way. And here's what I've learned that it is. We are called to honor others above pleasing others. Romans 12.10 says this, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Our staff um, has been talking about kind of the culture on our staff recently. And we've been spending months about it. And there's this one word that just keeps coming to the forefront of who we want to be as a staff, and it's the word honor. We want to be a staff of honor. It's a word that we believe encompasses who we are as a staff. It, it's not just for our staff either. It's for our church as well, but we're starting there, and it's in the case of relationships with each other. We seek to honor one another. It also means that we seek to honor each other above just simply pleasing each other, and there is a big difference between those two. 
Simply doing something or saying something just to please another person doesn't help us as a staff become a stronger team or lead the mission of this church well. So we are choosing to honor one another. And here's what that means. It means that we seek peace with each other when there is conflict. We don't ignore the conflict. We don't just try to please each other in the midst of the conflict. We actually honor each other by seeking peace with one another. It means that when we don't agree with something, we don't go tell other people about it so we might gain their approval. We actually talk to the person and show honor to them and deal with what's going on. It means that we are ultra-focused on getting things right over being right. It means that we're committed to do what God is calling us to over the individual approval of others. Honoring somebody is a true posture of humility. It's a willingness to say, I will do everything in power to make sure that this relationship is done with integrity. It means that if there's conflict, we're going to deal with it, you and me. I'm not going to, oh, yeah, we're so good to see you, and then go about my gossip with my friends, right? That's not how I talk normally, by the way. Apologize. <laughs> We're not going to do an end around with each other. And I'm not going to say something to you because I know you'll like that and then I'll feel good about that even though really I'm just lying to you. Yeah, yeah, you know, I'll do that for you. No, no, we'll, we'll talk. Yeah, we'll figure that out. And I'm not going to do that. That's not honor. That's people pleasing. That's self-worship. I just want you to get off my back so I can just live in comfort with myself and not actually deal with the problem. Honoring someone is so different than just trying to please them. To honor someone means you have their best interest in mind. To honor someone means you make decisions based on what is best for God's kingdom and not your kingdom. To honor someone means you take the initiative to talk to them first when problems arise, not someone else. To honor someone means you love a person even if they don't approve or like you. Try that one out for size. To honor someone means you say what needs to be said with grace and love. We don't lie to each other. We, 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 don't, we don't do one thing and then say another. That's not honoring. The Apostle Paul, he really seemed to get this. Now, the Apostle Paul did not mince words at all. And I love that about him. But you know what? He also kind of ticked off a lot of people in the process. And he was okay with that. He was okay with the fact that not everybody liked him. But what he does do is he seeks to honor everyone no matter what. In Galatians chapter 1, he says this. He says, obviously, I am not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If people pleasing were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. You hear that? You can't serve Christ and try to please all of the people around you. It won't work. It will not work. And you know what? It doesn't honor the other person. It doesn't honor you. And it certainly doesn't honor your creator. Paul is so concerned with honoring others, not pleasing them. And the sooner we are able to make that distinction in our lives, the sooner we will experience greater peace with ourselves and with the circumstances and the people around us. The question we have to ask ourselves with this issue is, who will be worshipped in my life? Will it be me 
or will it be Jesus? Will I seek to honor people or will I seek just to try to please them? Let's pray. God, it feels sort of weird looking at sort of the, uh, the villain in this story and recognizing the truth within it, but that's just part of the storytelling that you do, I think. And you know, our desire is to be a people who honor you with our lives, who place you at the very top of all that we are and all that we do. God, that you would be the focus of our worship. And that in those moments when we're tempted to just simply say the thing that pleases the person or do the thing that's going to make everybody happen, even though we know it's a lie, it's not the truth, it's not the right thing, I pray that by your spirit you would remind ourselves it's not just a lie, it's not just shrouding the truth, it's dishonoring that we would choose to honor the people in our lives instead of just simply pleasing them that you would give us the courage to build relationships based on truth and integrity and honor. And problems arise, when things go awry, God, that you would teach us what it means to honor one another as you've commanded us. Lord, I thank you for Jesus. I mean, I just, I just can't think or imagine what would have happened if Jesus would have succumbed to people-pleasing in the world as he sits in the desert and Satan comes to him and he tempts him three times, if the idea of just pleasing people were on Jesus' mind, would this have ever happened? As he went to the cross, as he was put on trial, he could have said anything. He could have done anything to end it, but he didn't. Why? Because it would have been dishonoring, not just to you, but to those he came to save. So we may we follow your example that in love and in truth and in grace we would follow and step with you that we wouldn't seek after just pleasing people but honoring them that we wouldn't make ourselves an idol but instead you would be the focus of our worship in all that we do and that as a result not only would our relationships help be healthy but God that your kingdom would move forward in a way that we may have never seen before. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your example. We thank you for the gift of grace and mercy that even in the midst of our own desire to want to please everybody around us and put ourselves at the forefront of our own lives, that you continue to chase after us, you continue to pursue us, you continue to come to us and give us rest. And so this morning, we say to you, we will worship you. We will honor you. We will walk with you. We will put to death the old life of people-pleasing and instead seek a life of honor to you, to ourselves, and to those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.